Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council Podcast. This is your co-host Brandon Saxton. And your other co-host Katie Corden. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm good. I might be over-caffeinated, so I'll try not to excessively talk loudly. Nice. <laughs> if you, uh, we were just joking, of course, before I hit the record button, that if you were to pass out due to over-caffeination, the show, of course, would go on. So <laughs> That's right. Listeners, don't fret. <laughs> with, with or without Katie, we'll get through this episode. How are you doing, Brandon? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Today, I, uh, I, as you know, of course, I, I'm, I haven't had a break since 7 a.m., yet so i'm still cruising along and that's not a terribly long day for maybe other people but for me it is so if i seem the opposite of over caffeinated a little fatigued and a little like my cognitive faculties are not as quick as usual which is not a a high baseline to begin with (laughs) that's why (laughs) um randolph how is your alertness level today oh it's pretty good uh you know for a wednesday i'd say excellent Nice. Well, good. I'm glad we have some we have some middle ground here. Well, Randolph Bricky is back, which I'm excited about. Randolph yeah, is a trial now. a two P. Yeah, two <laughs> as we call it. Yeah. Um, he Randolph is a trial attorney, a writer, and former public defender. And we had him on before to talk about Batman and yeah. morality, and we're that really excited episode. to have him back. In fact, this episode was completely Randolph's idea. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Randolph. Oh, any excuse to talk about uh, this movie. Okay, great. Absolutely. I mean, you're basically making this show now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm considering this a producer credit, actually. Absolutely. That seems very fair. We can work that in. I've always wanted one of those. (laughs) Well, we're going to talk about primal fear today. And so maybe we can. And then. Well, can I jump in, Katie? Please do. I want to put a spoiler tag for people who haven't gotten around to seeing. Isn't it it 23 years old? You know, you can't. Yeah. You can't, uh, you know how people are with spoilers. That's you, you, true. You can't be too careful with that. So uh, spoiler true. warning for Primal Fear, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, it's time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's time to get <laughs> and up. And it's free on Amazon Prime right now. Oh, and Hulu. Oh, well, That's there you I go. It, yeah. No so, excuses. It's experiencing a renaissance. And uh, yeah, yeah. You know, this will be the year of Primal Fear. <laughs> it's time too, really. Yeah. It's been a long time coming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're bringing it back. Well, we're going to talk about that, talk about the legal components and mm-hmm. the psychological aspects of it, but maybe we should start with introducing the movie. Randolph, do you mind giving us a background? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it, it has one of those titles that's a very 90s title, like Basic Instinct, you know, two words, very punchy, very generic, you know, like primal fear. Because the movie has nothing to do about fear, and there's nothing really that primal about it either. Like, it's not about a, you know, a, a Kurt situation or a heart of darkness or anything else like that. There's really nothing primal. And, and it's not a horror movie either. But it is called Primal Fear. Uh, because that was, I guess, just pulled out of a ticker tape machine. <laughs> <laughs> the only horrifying part that Brendan and I were texting about was the bloody hand. But... Yeah, I'll throw that in. But other than that, you're right. Yeah, but it's a thriller. It's, it's <laughs> that's not right. a horror. Yeah. No, that, it, that's absolutely right. And it's also sort of a repurposed noir story format, where if you essentially substitute the attorney for a down-on-his-luck private eye, uh, it, that is Richard Gere's character, except he's a lawyer, and he's trying to prove the innocence of a young man who he thinks is innocent, and it's the young Edward Norton, who is accused of viciously murdering and mutilating a priest. And uh, ultimately, he adopts a sort of femme fatale role where the entire movie, his character is based on whether or not you know he did it and whether or not you know he's faking, which you learn at the end that he did do it and that he is faking. But in, in the interim, it, it's just a twisty narrative of whether or not he did it and whether or not he's culpable only with Edward Norton instead of like a Lauren Bacall. But it is very film noir. Uh, he has a couple of uh, little underwritten characters who seem like they put, could have been bigger characters in like a novel or something, uh, with, which are his private detective in-house and his paralegal, I believe. Mm-hmm. And he is himself a former prosecutor, hotshot Cook County 
essentially, he, he's the lawyer everyone knows in the world, which is a really bizarre figure that does not really exist in reality, but he has a solo practice, and he's also friends with every single person on the city council, and he hobsnobs with, with mobsters, but in a very, like, cool way. And, um, yeah, it's, it's this hyper-idealized idea that, you know, he's this amazing attorney who has a solo practice, and he you know, knows everybody in town, and he's a troublemaker. He's a troublemaker who's friendly with all of the powers that be, mm-hmm. for whatever reason. And he investigates, essentially, whether or not uh, Edward Norton knowingly committed uh, the murder and whether or not he was uh, insane or not insane. And then it's a courthouse drama. And it has, of course, the amazing Laura Linney, who just, you know, is incredibly amazing as the idealized prosecutor. Yeah, the cast was incredible. Oh, I everybody had, uh, is. Oh, mm-hmm. Seriously, Gosh. Francis McNormand mm-hmm. and oh, yeah. Marty from Frasier. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of them a, are great. A young Alfred Woodard as the judge, mm-hmm. who just commands the hell out of this noble judge character. It's just, oh, it's great stuff. So, yeah, great great cast, great performances. Absolutely all around. Yeah. Yeah, I like them a lot. And uh, so in the course of his representation, uh, Marty, the uh, the attorney, he has to investigate whether or not this kid did it. And there's a little bit of a circuitous backplot about uh, a land deal that went bad that honestly just feels like it was grafted on because of Chinatown. Uh, because it really doesn't fit into the broader narrative of Edward North. Did he do it? Why did he do it? It's one of, I think, two red herrings that are presented and never really resolved in any way. Uh, it, it's just considered, it's just wrapped up at the end of the case. It's like, yeah, you know, you, you accused the alderman of, you know, a horrible crime, but well, see you Monday. <laughs> and, and it's, it's like that. It's like nothing was resolved. I mean, you just pointed and yelled at him in the courtroom. All you've really done is just really infuriating a powerful figure in the institution of Cook County. When, you know, and Cook County, of course, is not a place that's notoriously kind to those who uh, flaunt the powers that be. It's, you know, that, this all takes place in the backdrop of the Chicago machine where, where this lawyer lives, who is beloved by everyone and known by first name basis with every city reporter. Uh, while he works at a solo practice as a recently, uh, as a guy who recently left the state attorney's office, <laughs> it's like, I, I, you know, it, it's like Char- uh, Clarence Darrow, Mark three. And yeah, and he, you know, he invests, investigates the case and he flirts with Laura Linney and, you know, they have an off-again, on-again, you know, they're just both too damn hard charging to commit to their relationship. <laughs> right. Very 1950s. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, even for the time it came out, he was, you know, very, very handsy and direct in the workplace with her. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Mm-hmm. And, like, pretty handsy, like, at the end, too, after she's attacked, he's like, sit around <laughs> and dance with me. I'm yeah. like, I don't know, if I was just attacked, I'd probably want a little more personal space. He's like, I need to look at your face with my law knowledge. It's right. Like, no, you don't, bud. <laughs> No, really dude, no. that's not the right reaction in that particular case for most people. No, but uh, yeah, and then at the very, and I think, and I'm giving the plot a little bit of credit right now, maybe too much, and I think what happened is that Edward Norton, you know, just this incredibly raging, almost comic book level, laughing, sneering, murderous villain, uh, adopts this very fair, simple-minded sort of routine the entire time. And then I think what happened is that he had a flash of temper, which prompted him to drop that mask. And then he had to figure out a way to, you know, to explain what the heck was going on and just sort of seized on the dual personalities. And there was uh, and there was the aggressive, protective personality and the, uh, you know, submissive, vulnerable personality. Yeah, I think that's that's so interesting that it would come about that way, because thinking about how effortful Mm -hmm. it was for him to come up with this kind of, I guess, sympathetic person who just frankly looks pathetic and you wouldn't believe Mm -hmm would ever hurt anyone and just seems totally different from that. And then to see the contrast with who he is, it's I it's interesting because I think that there part of the controversy around dissociative identity disorder has been the idea that people mm-hmm. can act like they have it because they've heard it depicted in popular media. And that's the, the phrase. And Frances yeah. McNorman's character who I think they call her a neuropsychologist in the film. It yeah. Okay. She says, you know, most of the time amnesia is due. She even says it's malingering or there's mm-hmm. something else going on. But she kind of, she definitely buys it mm-hmm. when he starts acting that way. And so it is interesting to think about how, like you said, that might have occurred to mm-hmm. him 
when he was just trying to figure out a way to cover up for the fact that he let his true self show. Mm-hmm. Oh, the, the, that's my generous reading. The other is that, you know, he had this incredibly elaborate Byzantine plan. He's like, and then I'll do this, and then I'll pretend to have this psychiatric disorder and go over here and go over there and up and down. And uh, that that's my generous reading of it, is that, oh, like, oh crap, i got to think of something. Uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And that seems more realistic to me. It's just requires so much planning the other way around. It's it's a lot of work. It is, and it's like a really like long-term planning. Like at just the right Mm -hmm. moments, like all the pieces have to fall into place for this to work, you know? It's an enormous amount of premeditation. It just enormous like on the level of a you know a Soviet spy or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I find that part kind of hard to believe. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but that is actually a persistent concern that prosecutors have, is, is that they're, they're seeing malingering situations, even, you know, when the crime itself only really makes sense if it's the product of some kind of psychiatric distress or disorder. And, of course, the, the, the irony here is that he did, in fact, possess a diagnosable psychiatric disorder. It, it just, you know, wasn't one that engenders sympathy for obvious reasons. Exactly, and one that wouldn't count for not guilty by reason of insanity. No, not by the the bizarre, arcane (laughs) uh, nomenclature that is the definition of insanity uh, as a matter of law. And the way the law would treat, uh, you know, that kind of psychotic circumstance is basically sleepwalking. They essentially just treat you as though you had been sleepwalking and there was no intent or ideation or active consciousness at work at the time. And the way they come to that is by... uh, literally old common law 17th century ideas about when and how a person escaped moral accountability, which were mostly just church canon that had been adapted, you know, ages back. And they read, for example, like an irresistible impulse, whether or not you are capable of understanding the moral character of your actions, uh, whether or not you are um, so disassociated with reality that you do not understand that you are in fact doing something that is the sleepwalking or whether or not you lack the mental capacity to know right from wrong, essentially a state of innocence brought on by some kind of cognitive impairment. But it's not something that's codified diagnostically, certainly, and it's not something that would withstand empirical scrutiny or something that you could use to create objective differentiation between people. Why does that persist if it's old-timey and hard to test? Uh, Because there's no real will to change it, and there's a lot of will not to change anything that relates to criminal law, especially at the state level. Uh, But what it comes down to effectively is the subjective judgment of judge or jury. Uh, Because there's going to be someone who decides that that decision is going to be uh, given a great deal of deference by any kind of appellate review. So it really just comes down to catch as catch can with a jury. I mean, I there was a case about two years ago, I believe, in Maryland where a man uh, saw – and this is the prosecutor's case, by the way – saw a, a neighbor in an apartment building give what he considered to be a mean look to him and then decided to go down to a hardware store, buy supplies, go back and murder her in her apartment. And that uh, case was defended by, you know, on a not guilty by reason of insanity basis, and they lost. And the prosecutor's case was that, yeah, I mean, this woman looked at him in a mean way, and he decided to murder her in a very sane manner, you know, you know, like sane people do. But within the legal context of what is and is not insanity, which is obviously not merely, unre- you know, different then, but unrelated to any medical base, you know, any medical terminology uh, and system, then it, it's just whatever 12 people in a box or however many a box decide or, you know, one in a box if it's to the judge. So that gets to the part where it is really about persuasion and based on basically more persuasion than like a scientific proof. And they do, right. They draw in experts to try to convince the jury Mm -hmm. and the judge, I assume, but it sounds like in some cases you can have someone who might have diagnosable schizophrenia, but they still wouldn't get the not guilty by reason of insanity. If you can show that they knew what they were doing at that time, is that yes. true? And, and one thing too is, is a lot of states, Virginia in particular, which is the state law that I know, uh, have what's called a one drop rule, whereby any voluntary intoxication, which coincides uh, with a mental disease or defect or, or with any kind of psychiatric condition that's alleged to be the basis of a not guilty by reason of insanity verdict that alcohol nullifies the defense. As you might imagine, that comes up pretty often when you're talking about crimes of violence because it's alcohol. Yeah, and it also seems like, you know, people, of course, who are suffering from mental Mm -hmm. health conditions are much more likely to abuse those substances. And so it seems like that might be part of the picture, but they could still not have the capacity to understand or kind of Mm -hmm. not be connected with what's going on in the moment 
but it wouldn't be considered if they have the one drop of alcohol mm-hmm. or whatever it is. If they, yeah, if there's a voluntary intoxication that can be argued as a, you know, a separate cause or an intervening cause, then yeah. So one, one question that I have is, what's the difference between not guilty by reason of insanity and capa- like capacity to stand trial? Oh, capacity is a separate issue, and that's one instance where this uh, this movie goes awry. And it is for a, you know a big blockbuster pulpy movie, actually pretty decent on the law. There are a couple of moments where it strains, but for the most part, it's it has the right feel. It is obviously blown up to you know a thousand time proportions, but other than that, uh, but capacity to stand trial requires that somebody know what's going on with their case and that they be in a condition that allows them to participate in their case which is an utterly separate legal standard than not guilty by reason of insanity. Capacity is actually something that's a lot more comprehensible from a modern empirical medical standpoint. You know, whether or not somebody is able to participate is, is something that a, a psychologist can appreciate and understand and describe in you know, meaningful terms, as is um, whether or not they have the capacity to understand the proceedings against them. And the capacity situation would have been raised in this case very early on and would have you know, stop the clock essentially on starting a trial footing while everyone figured out what was going on with this scared, frightened boy like child who ha- is accused of, you know, tearing out a man's eyeballs. Mm-hmm. Uh, that alone, the nature of the crime would guarantee that any attorney, for no other reason than covering his butt, would have this guy evaluated at the outset, either on the public's dime through a court appointment or in this case, I think he got a private uh, doctor. I'm not, you know, again, he's the most successful, amazing lawyer in Chicago. Everyone knows his name. He probably just needed to walk into, you know, the University of Chicago, point at somebody and just walk out. Because <laughs> uh, that's not expensive. Right. But he has her doing the evaluation and it seems like conducting treatment. And all of this is happening during the trial, which must be very stressful. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wow, what a long day. She mentions that she's done like 60 hours of assessment and or treatment combined. So quite a substantial amount of time to spend with one person for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. And all of this would be spread out in like an easily six to nine month period beforehand with a referral to the state hospital if it was deemed warranted. All before trial began. Okay. So the lawyer makes the first assessment about what and and judges from there what mm-hmm. further evaluation might be taken? In practice, yes. Okay. Uh, in, in effect, and this is just my experience, in most jurisdictions, I imagine this is also the case, which is that any of the parties can ask the court to consider somebody sent out for evaluation uh, with regards to their capacity to understand the case and to stand trial. Uh, the judge can do it sua sponte. The prosecutor can ask the judge to consider doing it as well. And, the def- and of course, the defense attorney can do it, who is usually the first one to do it because they're the, usually the first person involved to have an in-depth conversation with the eye towards actually helping the person involved. Uh, cops and detectives, in my experience, have never, I don't, I don't even know, that would be very weird and inappropriate for a non-party to do it. Hmm. Uh, but then they go out for an evaluation, and that evaluation usually comes back with an assessment, and that assessment will recommend some sort of course of action which can restore that person to capacity. Now, restoration, which is what this essentially will become, is a restoration order, ordering whatever state uh, hospital uh, to provide these services. I have had situations, for example, where a cognitively impaired person was, quote-unquote, restored, and the restoration was really just training this person to provide uh, basic responses if you ask for questions like, what is a judge, or what is my lawyer, and things like that. It would, you know, This person would then provide the response they instructed them to provide, and that was considered restoration. So like a rote memorization of the specific answers? Correct, to a script. Okay, that seems... I, what are you going to do? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, mm-hmm. they are at the end of the day running a system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is not a hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the primary concern here is not the welfare of any individual person. Yeah, that's that's a good point. The The goals are very different than, although they're mixed a little with the neuropsychologist mm-hmm. in the film, uh, they're yeah. different. Because even there where you bring in an expert to evaluate, they wouldn't be doing therapy during... No. During no. that time, yeah. And, and the verisimilitude broke down up there a little bit because, I mean, on the direct, which is just where the Richard Gere questions her, uh, he, he can't just get up there and say, isn't it true that, you know, your your theory is that, the, you know, he can't lead her like that sure. to the point where she's just up there saying, of course he's not guilty. Raymond Candler didn't murder her. And it's like, no, at that point, it's almost like a seance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
that's a strange value judgment. I believe she, he also asked, uh, is he capable of murder? Which is not a question that I don't think anyone, I mean, um, <laughs> I've talked to him for 60 hours and I know for a fact he's, he is incapable of murder. Right. Yeah, as a psychologist, I, I wouldn't. That. Yeah, as a psychologist, I wouldn't really go into That's a that. Strong conclusion. It is. You need a lot. Yeah, you need some really good odds on that bet. Well, I mean, it's. I don't know. I. It's a big. It's a big problem if you err in the wrong direction on that when you're an expert. So I would be extremely yeah. cautious, and it's hard to predict. So I would which actually cautious. leads into another major false note in the narrative. Uh, at the very end where the prosecutor, Laura Linney, who says something that no prosecutor would ever say, because any prosecutor trying a death penalty case knows better, which is that a guy under these circumstances will get out of treatment in a month. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no. Yeah, I, well, I, no, 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 that's not how dissociative identity disorder works. No. <laughs> the drug rehab in the jail gets out quicker than mm-hmm. that. No, no, no. No, that that was that didn't seem right to me for no. a number of reasons, but it's like one of the things is you don't let someone out if they're still dangerous. And why would he yeah. be not dangerous? Like, is the idea, oh, we're going to integrate his personalities in 30 days and then he's ready to join, rejoin society? I don't know. He'll have to fight all of his alternate personalities in the astral plane. <laughs> like identity. <laughs> yeah, and whichever one wins, if it's the good one, gets to get out. In that film, it is, yeah, that's part of the treatment is this elaborate fantasy of... Um, killing everyone except the good one, and then if the good one is still alive, then he's free. That's what I learned in graduate school. From me. It's actually a metaphor for the American criminal justice system. Now that's a different interpretation. (laughs) Yeah. Just kill, you know, all but one will die, and that one will be strong. Oh, Um, gosh. Yeah, that's... So, yeah, so I can understand why Vale is a little bit... um, ill at ease when he's leaving at that point, besides feeling foolish and realizing Mm -hmm. he was, well, fooled and deceived, but also like, oh, this guy's going to be out in 30 days. That's really dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) If nothing else, they can just charge him with assaulting the district attorney as well. That's true. That's true. And really probably should. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they they absolutely will. And then they'll they'll fold that into the existing uh, case. I mean, yeah, this is Cook County. (laughs) They've done worse. Yeah. But also, one thing that did disappoint me is that moment where uh, he reveals himself is that he has a verbal slip and knows something that he's not supposed to know uh, because it was something that should have happened when he was under the possession of his Mr. Hyde persona. And therefore, he can't recall it. And uh, instead of covering in any number of ways, like, you know, one of the deputies told me or just, you know, think of something, he instead does what I think might be one of the very first full on luxuriant slow claps and it's just like oh yeah he goes from being like his character is like a 19-ish year old uh kid with i imagine very hard-earned psychiatric problems that probably didn't come from nowhere and it's just like ah and suddenly he's mr moriarty Mm -hmm. and he's no longer he's no longer traumatized he's no longer led a life would which would have mitigation material and substance and character anymore because he's gone to the dark side of mental illness I guess because 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 at that point, just doing that and that clap and all that plotting and planning is just as sick as the what he was pretending to be. Absolutely. So he seems more that picture fits more with a psychopath, a very planful psychopath. I mean, extremely planful, planful more than most very conscientious Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. And that part, it does. It did remind me of like. Like the joy of fooling someone and manipulating someone, but that seems so inconsistent with the person who was forced into this situation and went through all of this stuff and then was behaving this, was able to maintain behavior a certain way the entire time. I, even if he was just a wonderful actor the whole time, as the movie suggests, and and playing Aaron, I still had a hard time believing, okay, so he's Roy this whole time, and he's been pulling this off. It just seemed, yeah, I would have found it more believable if he was like, yeah, I remembered the end of it, or I remember you telling me that after, you know, locking mm-hmm. me or, up, yeah. or whatever. Or at least draw it out a bit of it, you know, mm-hmm. draw it from him. Be like, no, I remember the deputy told me, you know, Deputy Colvin, and be like, Deputy Colvin was on the other side of the room, you know, <laughs> right, walking right, 
Right. He's like, oh, it, it must have been the other deputy, you know, and it's like, and he just like, look, just looks in and then a smile or something. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. 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 They should have milked that a bit more. Yeah. Norton can handle that. I think so. And I, so one thing I'm wondering what, so we, we said it's not typical to get like the 30 days, you know, after NGR. <laughs> what is more typical if someone has uh, and is found not guilty by reason of insanity? Well, the the one case that I've been able to, you know, really watch, because everyone can watch it, is the case of John Hinckley in Virginia, who, of course, is the man who sh- tried to shoot Ronald Reagan. It did shoot, I believe, Ronald Reagan, and also shot his press secretary. Uh, he is actually the scion of a wealthy Virginia family, which is in large part how he got to be that close to Ronald Reagan, is that, you know, they, the family knew him. Uh, and he was, I think, recently transitioned out of Central State Hospital, now, the thing about John Hinckley's case is that, A, the prosecution opposed it the entire time, and, B, one of the reasons that it was possible is that they slowly transitioned him out of Central State Hospital uh, on his family's dime, that they would actually pay guards to you know watch him as he would go to a movie or something, uh, which would not normally happen to a person if they were in Central State Hospital for uh, attempted murder of the president. And because they had the resources to actually transition this guy out, they were ultimately able, his attorneys were after 30 some years, uh, get him out for two attempted murder cases. Wow. He would have been out by now if he had just been convicted of attempted murder. He would have been out long ago. He would have been out after like 10, 15 years. Wow. So it's clearly that part. Um, I, because I do, I do think, well, this shows up a lot in, in ideas about, not guilty by reason of insanity, like you said, like they're let off or, I mean, even mm-hmm. in the, in the defense, maybe it's when they're faced with the death penalty, they're like, I might as well try to stay in the hospital or something mm-hmm. like that. And then they try to malinger things like that. But it is still, there's a huge amount of concern, maybe not with as much as, I don't know if it's punishment, but public safety and, and where they are. It's just that they're treated differently than putting someone who is in that state in a prison. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, it's it's a bicot it's a dichotomy because uh, if you look at this movie too, you see the same dichotomy: is that we allow ourselves two types of mentally ill people, the type of mentally ill people we sympathize with, and the type that we don't. Hmm. Now, often the type that we don't are really really unsympathetic, like a leering psychopath who murdered a bunch of people. Uh, that yeah, I get it. If you you know you don't extend yourself and all the sympathy in the world to that person, but. Uh, for example, I find it very difficult to believe that Edward Norton's character did not go through a lot of early childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. In, in, in the real world, based on the, the handful of times I've met people who have had issues, shall we say, similar to his, uh, I'm going to go ahead and you know be willing to bet the for, you know the family farm that that uh, the young Aaron, uh, let's just say that his performance as that vulnerable child who was in, afraid of being beaten all the time was perhaps informed by his circumstances. And his father, he says, I mean, I know we don't know for sure what to believe, although there is video of some of the sexual abuse and situations that he endured. Um, you're, you're absolutely right, though. Cleckley, who wrote one of the first books doing clinical descriptions of psychopathy, called it the mask of sanity. And so I think that's very fitting and, and does connect with what you said, which is the idea that if someone has the mask of sanity or they're a psychopath, they might look like they're quote unquote saint and, or they're sane, but they're actually suffering from a different type of mental illness. Like you're talking about, it's just not mm-hmm. the kind that would be considered not knowing what they're doing or not knowing mm-hmm. right from wrong or whatever else would count legally. Yeah, the the behavior is deviant and destructive in the extreme. It, it's just not a sort of mental illness that we can sympathize with. It's also, and you know, honestly, to be not a sort of mental illness that you know you can allow out running around. I think most people would agree without reservation that this guy should be locked up for a very long time at the very least. But it, it's just a question of whether or not we extend sympathy to the person who suffers the condition, or whether or not we don't. And it's honestly a little arbitrary, and I think it's more experiential than anything else. I've I've done some clinical work with people who were incarcerated and would be, be meet criteria for psychopathy. Often they had very awful childhoods as well. And um, when I teach, I would show them this video of the Iceman and the psychiatrist, which is Kuklinski, the serial killer who had this horrible upbringing, is clearly a psychopath, like on the high end of psychopathy. And I would ask my class, you know, do, does he have... 
is he able to tell right from wrong? And it's tough because cognitively he can say he knows what's right or wrong, but emotionally and fear-wise, it's not there. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have remorse and other things that usually influence people's behavior and stop, or he's not sensitive to punishment. And again, like you said, that doesn't mean he should be free and roaming around or shouldn't be held accountable, but should he, does he deserve any sympathy? Clearly, there are different lines drawn, and and I did find, at least in the classes I taught, some were really sympathetic and some were not at all. And so I can imagine when you have a jury thinking about these things, it could just vary mm-hmm. a ton. Yeah. And there's and we try to pretend otherwise, but realistically, I don't think anyone can say, uh, whether judge or jury, that their, their, their conception of whether or not this is a sympathetic or unsympathetic mentally ill person enters into their subjective value judgment as to whether or not this per- person meets the abstract, philosophical, legalistic, moralistic soup that is the legal definition of insanity. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, ultimately you're asking yourself whether or not somebody is blameful or blameless. And to be blameful or to be blameless is a moral judgment, and it's a moral judgment that people make, and very often on the basis of sympathy. I think that what what the kind of opening quote when when Richard Gere is talking to the journalist speaks to the legal framework, at least I think, which is, you know, the journalist starts saying, let's say you have a client, you know, is guilty, and he responds, the lawyer says, no, neither our justice system nor I care about that every defendant, regardless of mm-hmm. what he's done, has the right to the best defense his attorney can provide. And I think that what you're saying is that the best defense includes making the person seem sympathetic to the jury or to the judge. Is that is that what you mean? It has to. Mm-hmm. And I, I think ultimately the outcome of a, a very subjective judgment call, whether or not a, a deeply mentally ill person whose behavior is utterly maladaptive and self-harmful is or is not legally insane, has a lot more to do uh, with whether or not we, we like and sympathize with that person. It seems like Vale is kind mm-hmm. of struggling with the fact, even though he says he it doesn't matter if Aaron is guilty or not, it seems like it actually does impact how he's structuring his defense. And I'm just wondering if it seems like at some points in the movie, there's a very practical analytical lawyer approach to it. That's my uh, amateur mm-hmm. <laughs> observation. That's very much like how, you know, what are the, the factors and technicalities involved, but then he's a, they're real people too. And it does seem like he is actually affected by believing that Aaron is guilty or not guilty. And so I'm just wondering, how do lawyers deal with the tension of knowing whether the person is guilty or not and constructing the best defense? That seems like it might be difficult. I think what he does in this movie is actually something that you can see in attorneys in the course of cases, uh, which is that he adopts a similar approach to what I think the juries do, which is that they look to whether or not somebody is blameless or blameful. Now, early on, before there's any hint of any kind of mental illness beyond the fact that he's dealing with an abused child or young adult, he, he his rationalization of this blameless, blameful dichotomy is based mm-hmm. on whether or not he did it or there's a mysterious third man, because that's what he's given to work with by his client, which is reasonable. That's what the client says, uh, that he didn't kill the guy and that there was somebody else there. So he believes this person to be blameless because he empathizes with this person, he sympathizes with them, and because he believes this person is blameless, he first believes them to be factually innocent, and then he later believes them to be uh, innocent by virtue of mental illness. And I, I think ultimately that his desire and his belief that this person is blameless is what informs his rationalization as to whether or not the person did or didn't do it. Uh, and I think he does uh, make this point, maybe not as specifically uh, in, in that either that or the second of his discussions with that magazine writer, uh, which is that you don't ever actually know the truth, which is true in the majority of cases. You just genuinely don't. It is entirely possible, for example, that you know something weird is going on. It's rare, but weird things happen. So you don't actually have the knowledge you pretend to have. And in that framework, when you believe a person to be blameless and you also accept the idea that you don't have perfect knowledge of a weird-ass situation like this, uh, it's pretty easy to rationalize away the, the factual characteristics of whether or not somebody did a thing. Okay, so it seems like that keeping the idea of knowing the uncertainty is a way to cope with that tension or or build the case is that is that what you mean like you kind of think about well i don't actually know what happened and so i'm going to do my job and construct the best defense yeah okay and because i mean you see it through the movie too he he's not a man who's interested in uh um, knowing things he's a man who's interested in proving things right 
And you learn that about his character. I mean, he, he like literally runs over to represent him. He's really, and talks about like <laughs> yeah. some of it's the money, some of it's the headlines, but there's something else in there too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think part of it too, and I, maybe this is more explored and I'm 99% sure this came from a novel, this, uh, this movie, uh, is that, uh, there's a prior relationship with him and the district attorney where the district attorney had him do something unethical on behalf of the Catholic church. Oh, that's right. He does hint at that. Because he has that specific knowledge he uses to rattle the former district attorney. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a little bit of... So that part is really interesting, and he tells a journalist that he's not allowed to write about it, but basically he sees that he's able to do something really wrong, and therefore he is a little more forgiving of other people, or a little more humble in his otherwise self-admitted, arrogant way of being. And I think that his philosophy of accountability probably works a lot better than the majority of what his cases would be uh, if he's a reasonably high-operating solo practicing uh, criminal defense attorney, which is that they'd be possession of narcotics cases. Uh, and when you do a lot of possession of narcotics cases, you learn to roll your eyes. <laughs> Why is that? Uh, because at the end of the day, you know, somebody getting off scot-free for whatever technicality on a possession of a narcotics case is not really going to make you sad. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, the stakes uh, are or the stakes are different. Yeah, the stakes are different, and the moral character of the conduct of your client is different as well. Okay. Uh, because this movie would be a lot, lot more different if they added a single scene at any point in the movie where it was intimated that this guy might kill again. Mm-hmm. And it, it is implicitly treated as the plot that there is no threat or prospect of him doing that again because nobody brings it up. And that's the part that would go into this idea of is it okay for him to be out again and not mm-hmm. and not be monitored at all. Oh, and the way that would work at the state court level is just like it had with John Hinckley in Virginia, which is that there'd be a series of hearings uh, based on the continuing order that governed his uh, internment at uh, the state hospital, and that he'd have to get it in front of a judge and a prosecutor and defense attorney would argue as to whether or not he was yet safe to get out. And I can, I just find it difficult to imagine that anyone would prevail on a hearing like that unless they had the authorization and, you know, the, the doctor on board. I, I just, I just don't see a judge doing that under any other circumstances. And it seems like to me that at least from a psychological perspective, I would have more confidence that he wasn't going to hurt someone else up until the last scene because because before it's kind of like look he's got this horrible situation and not that it's justifiable or anything like that but you kind of get like this trajectory of why he might have this specific target but not repeat it right. but then at the end you're like no his personality is problematic and high risk for hurting other people who cross him or whatever so yeah yeah, you cannot say this person isn't capable of murder. Exactly. I mean, he's what the psychopathy checklist measures are designed yeah. for to assess who's likely to have a repeat offense. Of to course, cut off fingers. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, and that's interesting because they do bring that up too. That the particular violent yeah. nature of the act in the consideration. And he calls it a work of art. Yeah, he does. Yeah. He has that kind of like actual honest-to-goodness serial killer, behold my tableau yeah. shtick going on. Mm-hmm. And, and he can't explain that away either as part of a plan because that clearly did not you know, uh, help him or assist him in being a poor simpleton. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the fact that this murder was lured and bizarre did not really help him with that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, he's, he's absolutely going to, yeah, yeah. I, I don't see a doctor ever in a million billion years signing off on any kind of piece of paper saying that this guy is safe for public consumption. I wouldn't. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's a hell of a sale. <laughs> we'll, uh, and, and again, even if he did, it would still come before a judge. We won't find out until Primal Fear Part 2. Is that coming out soon? We can only hope. It's time, it's time to finish the story. At this point, it'd be like Neolithic fear. It's a more advanced form of fear. Right. It's far past the primal level. Yeah. But it also goes to another point about malingering, which is that it did not... The, the story didn't reveal this, but in reality, a, a guy who sets him up and sets himself up like he did, it, it, that's not really a winning play. It, it's not strong, pragmatic, intelligent work. Mm-hmm. It, it's just bizarre slapdash planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's usually the case with malingering, where all it really does is establish a record that's going to come back and bite you if you ever want to argue that you're sorry about what you did. And it will also I mean, put you in a position he's in where you are left 
lingering on the basis of a possibly arguable mitigation defense based on some issue in your past that is now going to be given short shrift because you've been tagged with the malingerer, mm. you know, tag. And you will get caught because when you are taken up for that evaluation, and if there's a restoration involved, they'll just, they can watch you on cameras and nobody maintains a mask for 24 hours. So you're saying, actually, it seems like he's quite clever, but the more the smarter thing or the more effective thing would have been to go with this idea of like a justifiable, not justifiable, but closer to justifiable homicide based on the trauma directed at him from this person that. Yes. Okay. Okay. And under those circumstances, the the mutilation of the corpse, of course, would have been the single most devastatingly bad thing he could have done for his prospects. Because, I mean, that doesn't look like an impulse step. It looks like, (laughs) I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, that looks like you know something else. And underlining in the book and stuff like that. Oh God, yeah, yeah. the book underlining was actually did annoy me because I was sitting there watching it and I'm just trying to imagine a jury like, wait, the passage was underlined on a book, yeah, in a, in a public house for altar boys who were supposed to be receiving church education from a you know from a bishop, yeah. and they had a copy of the Scarlet Letter with underlining. <laughs> yeah, and. You believe, Detective Bloptigia, <laughs> that this underlining indicates that this individual thought that that individual was two-faced because it's about a mirror. It's a hard sell. And it's, that is one of the stupidest... I mean, what? It's like something from a gothic horror novel. Yeah. Where you're, it's supposed to be written in the handwriting of a deceased person right. or something. <laughs> right. But it's just like something that's yellow highlighted. Like, I don't know. I mean, generations of young boys have received, you know, multiple choice tests from that book in that house. Right. But, you know, I thought that was really baffling. It was. So I feel like his whole, the whole psychological thing would be much more coherent if he wasn't malingering. (laughs) Like, I feel like I could imagine, you know, it's like, okay, this, you know, Roy or whatever came out and did all this stuff, Mm. you know. Yeah. Oh, oh, just imagine, though, that he isn't malingering, and that was Roy the whole time pretending to be him just so that he could piss off this one positive male role model in the life of his, you know, head partner, or whatever the phrase would be, you know, pretending the whole time just so he could emotionally wound this man that was close to this person, you know, the other personality. Oh, that would have been fun. Yeah, well, that's the other thing, too, is, like, he is really Roy's. Does that mean, I, yeah, it's hard... It's obviously I haven't put the pieces together yet because I was so thrown by the ending. I think I'll have to watch, rewatch yeah. it like you did, Randolph. And and, the, and when you, and I think I see this a lot in cases with malingering is they don't realize you still at the end of the day need to be a person that somebody is willing to sign a piece of paper saying you can go out in public. You you need you need to be sponsored. So like in a way, Bundy who charmed the judge. Who, who, like, <laughs> even said, you know, like, that it's a, it's a shame, I have no hard feelings towards you as I sentence you for serial killing. <laughs> yeah, which I really speaks to the power of psychopathy. I mean, this judge to be like, no hard feelings towards you, man. Okay. Um, even though you're sentenced to death. So, Bundy's approach, although clearly, ultimately, he was convicted might have drawn more sympathy, which is to be the charming guy who denies he does it versus the person who is so out of control that they lost it mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah, if you puff yourself up like a tiger, they will put you in a cage. Yeah, although he did he did represent himself, Bundy, right? So uh, For part of his case, okay. yeah. No, he, he did the maximal amount of what he did. Sorry, this is a particular irritation to me. What he did was basically engineer a circumstance in which he had tied the maximal number of lawyers into his case as possible, and he torpedoed his case so knowingly and gleefully that ultimately he just wanted to bring them there and make them uncomfortable. That was th- that was something he could inflict on them, mm-hmm. and that was all he could inflict on them. And, and, and you know, like it, it's a drunk drinking, you know, it's like a drunk person, you know, uh, an alcoholic drinking mouthwash. It's like that was the best he could do. Okay, so it's just his his sadism needed to be channeled differently since he was locked up. Yeah, and that's what he did. Yeah, yeah that that's one of the things you notice in uh, legal relationships uh, between an attorney, generally a court appointed attorney, and somebody with really bad psychopathy issues. 
uh, is that the attorney is the only person they have left that they can inflict anything on, which leads to some really fun and exciting moments in terms of just being jerked around. So if you're an attorney, you gotta you you've gotta be not easily rattled. I imagine if that's the crew you're working with, right? Do do they still find new ways to rattle you? Typically, no. Okay. Uh, what you, what you'll see is you'll see that occasionally from a very very not you know juvenile like a year out of juvenile. Uh, where someone will try that. Usually if somebody's been around the block a few times, they've learned over time that it's actually not beneficial to rattle the lawyer uh, because, you know, at the end of the day, a rattled lawyer is just going to do the job worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really all you're going to get. So it's kind of like you're sabotaging yourself. Yeah, I, I just don't see it, especially not with, you know, there's such a short list of people that you're allowed to really interact with in a meaningful way that isn't threatening to you. And, it, I mean, you don't want to poison those wells. So, uh, towards the end there, the, the judge won't allow that plea to change from not guilty to not yeah. guilty by reason of sin, even though we have this very new information that's available since the first plea. Is that is that realistic for us non-lawyers? Uh, uh, no. You can't... I mean, what you would do is have a mistrial. Sure. I mean, this falls into a, a sort of oubliette of different legal problems and exotic, weird occurrences that can happen during a trial. And, which at this point is a mistrial. Okay. I mean, the judge should have declared a mistrial probably well before that point. It was getting weird. <laughs> yeah. um, basically, any time a courtroom gets that weird, there's a mistrial. Sure. Um, so under those circumstances, too, even if they went through and they had a conviction, uh, most states you can raise new evidence as a basis for uh, reopening a case within about 21 days or 30 days. Okay. Uh, newly discovered evidence also is something you're supposed to be able to raise in some appellate actions. Uh, realistically, judges don't do a good enough job about it, but it's something that dramatic, uh, sustained by affidavit of attorney, I mean, it could go either way, realistically. Uh, but in terms of what Richard Gere should have done is that he should have got up and asked for a mistrial. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's no way that he can conduct that trial properly, and that's really just, just a mistrial is what you need. This case hasn't been up before. There's no reason not to at that point. It's so weird. Uh, if he were denied on his mistrial, that is still something he should have done to keep the issue preserved for appeal in the event that this guy gets sentenced to death. Uh, because under these circumstances, you have to preserve every single possible appellate issue. This is a death penalty case. Now, changing a plea at that point, again, I mean, it, this is something that's going to be very specific to, you know, the, the uh, not state law, but state procedure of a given state. And I don't you know, practice in um, Illinois. Uh, but again, all of this just folds into that giant category of weird things happening, death penalty case, mistrial. And at that point, I mean, they would have begun like they should have at the outset, which is that this kid should have had a roi- uh, an actual treatment and diagnosis and evaluation and all of that prior to any kind of trial footing. And the only evaluation she does that we see is basically interviewing and talking to him, mm-hmm. which is unusual there doesn't seem to be a lot of i don't know maybe she's it's trying weird to get yeah. yeah she's but she's a neuropsychologist mm-hmm. i would assume that she'd you know hook him up to an emg or you know some kind of thing she makes a reference to some uh imaging i think when she says that she'll meet him i think yeah that she a, wants costs for it yeah, yeah. she's a, a clinical neuropsychologist okay. but an academic but also yeah, right. yeah so out of touch yeah no <laughs> yeah touch. in the ivory tower but she doesn't even do like any cognitive tests. She doesn't do any stru- nope. like. There's not a structured like self-report questionnaire. <laughs> like there's no intelligence. Whatever. There's just, just nothing. It's just it's just talking. And it's also, just, yeah, talk therapy is just what she does. It does seem similar to one of the Hillside Stranglers, a Kenneth Bianchi, who was a serial killer who was found to be malingering and faking dissociative identity disorder, which I was referencing earlier. Um, and this documentary, which I'll link to in the show notes, which I think is pretty interesting, they show different people evaluating him. And at the time, the idea was you put someone into kind of a hypnotic state. And as we know, mm-hmm. uh, that's, well, th- that's a whole other show. But the point is that <laughs> the, the people who are experts in evaluating him are looking for things that are inconsistent with his story the whole time. And she doesn't, after 60 hours, seem to notice any inconsistencies in his picture. And I feel like a, a neuropsychologist 
Not that there aren't very convincing people, but when you're spending that much time with a mm-hmm. person, she seems to have zero doubt that he's yeah. that he's uh, really has dissociative identity disorder, which again can happen, but seems kind of unlikely given her expertise and just the circumstances of well, the situation. That wasn't her expertise, remember? Oh, that's right. <laughs> she, that's right. <laughs> oh yeah. The prosecutor makes a point to bring that up. Yeah. What was her expertise? You don't, yeah. You, I, I like the idea though that every psychologist has a disorder. Just one. Right. Like, you know, it's like a Harry Potter thing. It's like <laughs> we it's get like assigned it too. We don't pick. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, and whenever you're doing any kind of treatment or diagnostic work related to that disorder, you get like twice the results or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, you have to refer out if they're not yeah. within that one particular thing. But uh, that is kind of that is actually pretty uh, common for the level of weird kind of dumbish luddite contempt you can occasionally see from a prosecutor towards a defense expert. Uh, and I don't know why, because it backfires. I mean, it really does. Most lo- most prosecutors, too, are not like Laura Linney, where they can get away with things that you would find repulsive if they were done by someone who's not Laura Linney. Sure. In, in terms of how she behaved in that courtroom at mm, moments. Very brash. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I mean, she's really just a like kind of yelling. Well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, a lot of that goes to the, the cardinal rule of objections, which is that if you have one, you don't have to make it. Now, uh, I'm sure Richard Gere didn't particularly enjoy the specific, you know, just watching that kid get beat up because he still liked him at that moment. But he was letting that happen because he thought it would bring out Mr. Hyde. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in, in terms of what you can get away with, and I mean, if he'd stood up and said objection badgering that in a realistic courtroom setting, she would have been shut down. Mm-hmm. Also, there's a real risk the judge would have just shut her down if the judge didn't care for it. Uh, but if you sit and do nothing, you can happily waive objections. I've allowed occasionally people to do just that because that opened the door for, you know, something that you could do on cross. Uh, but the same thing, it goes for when the video was introduced through his, uh, private detective, Andre Brower, Mm -hmm. like that wasn't fun for him. But on the other hand, he needed that testimony. I see. So it's kind of like there's, uh, certain times when you're going to enforce, the rules and technicalities that you can when they're in favor mm-hmm. of the point you're trying to make. And otherwise you might not raise those objections. Mm-hmm. And he, it's interesting because he clearly, you see the look on his face that he's trying, right, to have Mr. Hyde come out. And, and later, um, Aaron says, like, we were dancing. I understood exactly <laughs> what you wanted me to do. And it's kind of like creepy mm-hmm. in that way because he's like, yeah, but that's because I thought you really had that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're never the uh, the writers weren't really clear, you know, to the extent to which he was or wasn't suffering from whatever. I mean, they just didn't really have that fixed. Mm-hmm. He's kind of a variable person. He uses all the quote unquote right phrases, though, right? He says he has blackouts, headaches, mm-hmm. spells, losing time. So he must have had some access to this before. Getting in there. Although, I mean, it's, it's a lot of movies are about dissociative identity disorder. So I guess even most. watching, yeah. <laughs> most, well, I many mean, of them. he read that one book. That's why they established he read the book. Uh, because oh, yeah. he read that book, he could have read the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is also a book. That's true. Well, so, <laughs> well but, case closed. <laughs> but then he also, uh, that's also why he claims to have, you know, like he tried to read the House of Seven Gables, but couldn't when he's in his persona, mm-hmm. his uh, simpleton persona. I had a question about that tape too. I don't. Did, was it weird to anyone else that they were just like, "Yeah, that was stolen from a crime scene," but oh well, it's in here now, like, it, and that was the end of it. It was introduced by the defense. Um, the yeah. prosecutor, if she wanted to, could have got up and objected. It's like, sure. "Your Honor, they stole this from the, a dead man's boudoir <laughs> after they broke in. Um, they've actually admitted to burglary." Yeah. <laughs> I don't want this in, but nobody objected. And if I were yeah. a judge, I'd be like, heck yes, I want to see this weird illicit sex tape. Right. <laughs> it's all adults. I mean, we've established that this is an adult, even though this child, you know, this story really does seem like it was pitched towards a younger actor. Uh, just in terms of, you know, Edward Norton. I, it, it's, it's obscure to me, though. One thing I don't understand is why he was preyed on by the priest while also being a cold-blooded, uh, highly confident murderer. Yes. Yeah. 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 If he's Roy, then that that would seem yeah. highly unusual. He, he doesn't just beat up an old man. No, he menaces Richard Gere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's portrayed as some sort of Frankenstein monster type creature in those moments. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that doesn't fit either. No. Because why wouldn't it? Yeah. Why wouldn't that have come out earlier? Yeah. You know? 
Because it, it, it's not like he's portrayed as someone who snapped in that moment. He's portrayed as somebody who was always highly confident mm-hmm. in terms of mm-hmm. doing violence. And that, yeah, that doesn't really strike. That's Chicago for you. Yeah, <laughs> Chicago is really the major <laughs> explanatory factor here. Yeah. <laughs> I lived there for a year. I can say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, one. So one more thing that I that I thought I mentioned is that it does seem like even with undergraduate students in this one study that was done a while ago that if you have undergrad students pretend that they're accused of something and they have to make up their own defense, depending on how you frame things, they will jump into the dissociative identity disorder thing. So if they start, if you say, sometimes there are different parts of your personality and they don't all come out, then that group of students versus another group of students that's just told you're accused of this, what's your defense? Mm -hmm. The group prime with the personality thing or told the personality thing, I should say, it's not really a prime, will be more likely to act out this idea that they have multiple personality. And I think that gets to a really important point about expert assessment in psychology, which is you have to be extremely careful in how you ask things. Oh, yeah. And and I think, too, I mean, very few psychologists have a whole lot of experience, I imagine, with clients that are actively trying to deceive them like this in this way, you know, like, but in terms of malingering in a psychological context, I mean, it just does not, I imagine, a huge feature of common practice. Yeah, I mean, I th- I do think that's something where the expertise with that particular area. And I mentioned Cleckley's A Mask of Sanity. And the whole reason I read that was because when I was working in a correctional facility, my friend who now actually specialized, he's often hired by um, prosecutors to do evaluations for people, told me to read it because I didn't really detect things like psychopathy and antisocial personality features. And so I'm the kind of person that didn't recognize it at first, but would later. So I, I agree with you. I think that you're most of the time, the patients I'm working with now and that Brandon's working with, we assume that they're telling us to the best of their ability, what their experiences are, not that they're trying to deceive us. And mm-hmm. Yeah. One last question for me, I guess, how, often or realistic was it to have someone who worked in the DA's office just quit that job and then become uh, the single known hotshot defense attorney of the town? That, that struck me as weird as a well, total outsider. Yeah, in, in terms of leaving a prosecutor's office and becoming a defense attorney, that's very common. It's an extremely common career track. But to leave the prosecutor's office and within a couple of years establish yourself as the gosh darn best, you know, spit shine attorney who ever lived in the city of Chicago. I mean, that that's something that only Marty could do. Sure. It's really something to aspire to. He's- yeah. Well, I li- I did like the device of having the journalist asking him questions and kind of throughout. Oh, that was some pretty good exposition, though. It's mm-hmm. like, is this what you're doing? Is that what you're doing? Mm-hmm. It's like, did you say four scenes by- with my presence? Yep. <laughs> yeah. It did make me interested to read the novel, I have to admit. I, I enjoyed the movie enough that I, I would be interested in seeing the story and the characters fleshed out in a different way with the novel, I think. Yeah. yeah. It's a pretty good, I mean, it's a good story. I mean, I could see it being a pretty good, like, airplane or camping book. Totally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I liked it. I would say if it's an 8 out of 10, maybe even higher identity, mm-hmm. I would put as a 2 out of 10, even. <laughs> <laughs> so here's another thing that I was thinking, too. An identity, the... Um, the main character is not really sympathetic. I was thinking how compassionate of a depiction this was until the end. I was like, oh, this is actually a pretty compassionate way of talking about dissociative identity disorder, but then it all got changed. Where does split yeah. fall on your scale? Where does split fall? Just thinking of I all mean, the dissociative identity disorder. I liked movies. identity better than split, I guess. I don't mm-hmm. know. Did you see split, Randolph? That was the, the Shyamalan. That's mm-hmm. the one. Oh yeah, yeah. That I thought that was actually a very accurate depiction of what you know mental illness generally is, which is the apotheosis into a supervillain, <laughs> complete with physical and biological transformations, yes. biogenic changes. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's what you're going to look into. I mean, it, you know, it's it, it was it was like um, that movie where uh, what's his name was a werewolf, Teen Wolf. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's like that. It's a coming of age story. <laughs> it's. It's uh, I I like to to laugh about it, but at the same time, after Split, I had students ask me if different personalities like could have different like it could one be a diabetic while the other one wasn't. So, it, as much as I do like to chuckle about Split, it does also bother me for that reason. Oh, it bothers me too. I think that I mean I have to laugh at it because it's ridiculous, but at the same time, 
So we recorded what three? Thir- like thirteen. Split? Yeah, thirteen split. <laughs> like episodes. thirteen reasons why we we yeah. record an episode because the thing is certainly in teaching abnormal psychology, a lot of the ideas do come from movies and TV shows, mm-hmm. and so when you have that, I just feel so bad. If you're an individual afflicted with a horrible mental illness and the only people, the only thing people know about it or mostly know about it is that means that that's the thing that murderers have in movies. I'm like, that's terrible. What do you expect that person to do? I mean, where do you expect them to go? Well, anything else? This has been really interesting to hear about all the legal aspects of it. Anything else we should talk about? That's all that comes to mind, though. I'd have to say overall, I would recommend this movie. Uh, it, it's sort of a time capsule of, you know, the glossy 90s thrillers. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, super sexy. It's not a basic instinct, but it, it's you can see, like, the seeds of law and order buried in it. Mm-hmm. You know, sassy prosecutors, and it, it's all in there. It's just, like, this is the procedural, but without cops, but with lawyers instead. Even the music was, like, a precursor to law and order. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, the inspiration here really does run deep. You can see Sam Waterston, you know, as a sort of TV version of Richard Gere. Okay, well, thank you so much, yeah, Randolph. This, I, yeah, this was really fun to talk about this movie, and thanks so much for the suggestion. You have earned your producer awesome. credit. Awesome, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, thanks so much for listening in, and we'll be back again in a couple weeks. Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council Podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Jedi Council. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.